Acts 13, 26 through 39. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in it also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All right, I'm uh, Tim Barker, and uh, I have the pleasure to speak with you this morning from this passage. Uh, my wife Katie and I have been here uh, for a little over a year, and I've uh, really enjoyed our time together. Is that on? Yep. All right. Uh, one of the, find myself in interesting circumstances here. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of plagiarizing a little bit this morning, if I'm entirely honest with you. If you look at the passage that we're looking at, I'm, I'm really just trying to preach to you the sermon that Paul preached. Um, as we go through the book of Acts, there's going to be three sermons like this that take place. And uh, my job as a speaker is to try to have you engage with Paul's original sermon. Uh, the Holy Spirit has made sure this is preserved all the way to you today. Luke wrote down what Paul wrote. So really all I can try to do today is try to lay that passage in front of you, make it make a little bit of sense in our context where we are today, a little north of Boston. And hopefully from this, you will see what Paul was trying to get to his original readers. When I think about what we're trying to do in this text today. I think I'm trying to settle in my own mind the, the problems that we often see between correlations and causation. All right, you're, fam- you're probably familiar with that famous statistic of economics or statistics that come out. Yes, even, even some of you who are a little scared of those comments probably know this one, right? You've seen how crime rates seem to be directly related to ice cream sales. Have you, have you seen this before? Right? People buy more ice cream, the murder rate goes up. So we could look at those two stats and we could say, wow, I don't know what Ben and Jerry's is putting in there, but that sounds like murderous mocha or whatever it is that you're putting out there is a terrible idea and you should in no way do that. But that would only be if there's causative effect there, right? Really, they're just correlated. What happens? Ice cream sales kind of go up. It's in the summer, so people have more time on their hands, so probably there's a greater chance that crime happens. They're related to each other, but they're in no way cause and effect relationship. In the passage that we're going to look at today from Acts, what we struggle with is we oftentimes think that when we have access to God, when we have of love for God, that somehow there's a correlation between our good works, our efforts, and obeying God. And I want to say, yes, there's a correlation. If you love God, you will obey him. 
and God shows his love and his blessing on you. However, it's not causative. There's no way in which your obedience causes God to love you more. And that's going to be the key point we're going to drive home throughout the the segment today. So let me set the the context. If you were here with us two weeks ago, uh, Matt Cruz was preaching through uh, the part about an influential and accomplished guy named Sergius Paulus. And when this guy got in touch with the gospel, he caught on fire. He was really excited, like everyone does who receives the gospel genuinely. He wanted to make sure that message went out to all his friends and his family. So they were on this island of Cyprus. Uh, It's a really nice vacation spot. If you're not familiar with Cyprus, it's in the Mediterranean. And after he got done meeting with Sergius Paulus, he said, basically, I'm going to send these guys back to my hometown over over in Turkey. So Paul and Barnabas and their crew, they sail on a boat, they head over to Turkey, they get into the the city of Pamphus, and then from there, uh, they're going to go on a trek to the city where this sermon is going to take place, which is uh, Antioch of Pisidia. And you might think, what's the big deal? Why are you bringing us through geography? That's a little strange. So I want to try to make the point of this, okay? He goes from a place, like if you can think about New Bedford, you go down to New Bedford, and you start heading out to Providence, to Smithfield, and then for some reason you just kind of start trucking up toward Worcester. And then after a while you keep going back around, and you're heading all the way to Lawrence. And this is where you're going to go and preach the gospel. You'd be thinking, that's kind of weird, Paul. Like, there were a ton of cities in there that you could have stopped and shared God's word in. Marlborough, Worcester, Lowell, all these places could have received the gospel, and they need it. But why would you go all the way up to Lawrence before stopping to preach the word? What he's doing is he's going to a place where Sergius Paulus has given him an opportunity. He's made his connections, the meaningful connections that we talk about here, before he goes and shares the gospel. But then the context that Paul's in, so we don't miss this, is he's in a synagogue. So he's shown up in a place where the word of God is preached, pretty similar to this. What's going on there in this exact context is that usually there's a liturgy that's followed, similar to what we go through. They would start with a word of of prayer, reminding themselves that the Lord is their only, only God. They would then go into reading the Old Testament law, the Torah, and then they would have some readings from the prophets of the Nalaim. And from that, they would spend some time then with some words of exhortation. The book of Hebrews is pretty much like that. It's the story of making connections with Scripture and hearing exactly how that relates to our individual lives. Well, something really interesting happens here. Paul and Barnabas are just like some people sitting in the back, out-of-towners. You know what it's like when you're not a townie. If you're a transplant, I'm with you. Okay, when you're there, you're sort of like, all right, I'm going to be quiet, see if anybody has any issues. Can you imagine you come into that context and they're saying, hey, hey, you guys are good believing Jews. Okay, why don't you come share the word today? Okay, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Lucky for them, it's, it's the Apostle Paul. He's happy to stand up. And so he looks out into this audience of people and you might be thinking, okay, what is this that he's trying to, to get out to this, these people? You know, I mean, he's probably ready to share with them the story of Christ. But it's not like he has this really detailed outline of what he really wants to hammer home to these people that he knows so, so well. Instead, he looks out in this audience, and who does he see? He sees pretty moral people. I mean, these are good Jews. He sees leaders of the synagogue that have reached out to him. He sees people who show up for service on a Saturday in this context, and they're there to hear the word of God preached. These aren't these unbelievably wild living people, the Gentiles that we hear so much about in the New Testament. He's speaking to moral people who are trying to do the right thing, trying to live lives that are probably a little bit better than the person next to them. And when he stands in front of these people, the main message that he gets across to them is he says, all of you are living in bondage. 
all of you are slaves to your moral performance. You can't measure up to what's required of you, but you're still trying to do the work yourself. And I think when I look out at this audience here and I think about your average individual in the Melrose and the surrounding communities, I'm going to say most of us are probably made up of people who were going along with the right thing. You know, you went to school, you probably worked eh, semi-hard, and then as you got through there, you probably stayed out of a lot of trouble, probably got, got decent grades, didn't have too much excess issues with those things that can train wreck your life. You probably made some good decisions in your career and with your finances. You probably are trying to do good things to the people that are around you. But the reality is, you are just as much bound for hell if that is your means of approaching God as if you were living as profligately and worldly and without any care for God. And that's what's hard for us to believe. It's not where we start. We think if we're living in a proper way, in a moral way, usually we think that that's going to get us this transactional result of God loving us, God showing us favor. Paul goes out of his way to tell a story that tells us that's not what's taking place. So the key message I want you to hear from this today is that Jesus frees us from the good performance of our morality. He is the one that makes us right with God. So as, as we go to look in this passage, I want you to just continue to feel some weight on your shoulders here a little bit as we try to measure up to God. There's so many things, so many responsibilities that we have in our lives that we're trying to live up for. Think about striving for fidelity in our marriages, working hard at our jobs and trying to work ethically, loving, training our children, caring for the poor, the underprivileged, sometimes that reaches out to us, taking care of our bodies, that's a, something we need to be doing, being wise financially, and probably trying to be patriotic and politically active in some way or another. You have all these responsibilities that are weighing heavy on you, and you feel that weight, and it's pressing on you so that you have to take one step after the other. Maybe you've made a few right decisions. Maybe this day you showed up to church. That's a good start. Maybe you read the Bible this week. Maybe you prayed. All of those actions in and of themselves that are weighing on you, yeah, I've got to do that again tomorrow. I've got to do it again next week. Those things will not bring the access to God, the love from God that you so need and desire. So what, is, what does Paul tell us? He tells us that really, if we're in this bondage of performance and we're required to perform over and over again with our obedience, that we're not free. As, as Dave read uh, from Acts 13, we, we look at that verse uh, down in verse uh, 30, 38. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could never be freed by the law of Moses. I was trying to think of what it's like to be free. I mean, I've spent my whole life free, American, not incarcerated, various those uh, concerns that are there. And the closest I got is really through film. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever seen uh, 12 Years a Slave as a movie. And I thought this was a pretty compelling picture. As you watch it and you kind of go through it, you get a feel for what it's like for someone who was born as a New York State-born African-American and yet was kidnapped and turned into a slave. It made the story a little bit different. You as a viewer are watching this and you're just outraged throughout. You just can't believe the mistake. Even for the terrible laws at the time and the misjustice that's taking place, you're thinking, this individual, if anyone, should be free. Uh, and yet the whole movie, you're watching this individual continue to be taken away rights physically and mentally. He's constantly prohibited from doing things. And all you do through the whole film is you're saying, let this guy out. 
How could he possibly be in this? There's some terrible mistake. If you have seen that or you can feel that with me, that's the sense that Paul's saying. You won't experience freedom through the law. The law of performance. The things that we're doing to measure up to God. So, being a rule follower or a moral person can still keep you from the forgiveness that you know that you need. And there's three points I want to kind of bring out from that. The first reason why this is true is because you're trusting in your own goodness. You're thinking that somehow I can be set free because I'm a little bit better than somebody else. I'm, I'm pretty good. What is interesting from this is that other religions definitely teach this as an approach. Usually they're pointing to the idea that your efforts as an adherent to that religion can somehow eventually achieve the performance that's necessary for salvation or whatever it's termed in their religious system. Only Christianity describes salvation as achieved by someone other than the adherent. It's the only religion that locates this in something other than the adherent's own goodness or following of the teachings of that religion. Thus, at its core... As we are tr- when we trust in our own goodness to achieve salvation or in our Christian life, thinking that somehow that's going to bring God's pleasure or blessing on us, we're living sub-Christian lives. Actually, unchristian, I should say, in the way that we're living. It's entirely against the meaning of the gospel. And yet we do it all the time. We're trusting in our own goodness when we avoid sinning, and living, uh, living morally so that God will come and bless us or save us. You're making your identity on your moral achievements, what you've been able to do. Uh, so we set up kind of an equation in our minds. We think, if I obey, then God will accept me and be pleased with me. So we put those two parts up. That's, if I do this, I'm going to get this outcome. So look, God, I, I maybe showed up and showed some kindness to some neighbors the other day. Well, God, I showed up on Sunday, so I better have a good week this week at work. We think that that equation is entirely lined up because we think it's all pointing to what we're doing. The reality is, as Paul gets to this point, both with his original Jewish readers and to us today, is that it's not based on what you do. It's not based on whether you've done the right thing today or whether you've fallen miserably today. It's entirely dependent upon what Jesus has done for us. The second reason that this is not going to work for us to follow, uh, follow our own worth and find our own morality from that is because it ends up just feeding our own self-righteousness, right? You might be saying, Tim, I, I, don't, I don't know who you're talking to. I'm, I'm not particularly self-righteous. I'm a pretty average Bostonian. I feel pretty good about uh, just trying to be an average person, try to stay out of trouble. But if Paul were preaching you to you this morning, he'd be trying to drive home the point Uh, that really what you do is you do judge other people. In uh, a letter that he wrote to a major metropolitan secular community, you might have heard of Rome, uh, he wrote about some people who, particularly the Jews there, that they looked down on others. They thought their own performance somehow validated them to think that they were better than others. And he brings them to the point that says, really, you're judging people about the stuff that you do yourself. I mean, maybe you don't do it just as obviously and physically explicitly as the individuals that you're judging. But internally, we know the message of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, the idea that there's this inward sin that we're following as well. So often that's true, right? We might be against someone for their sexual promiscuity, and yet we know in our mind we think the very same thing. We just haven't acted on it. We think with the same level of greed and the way that someone has been abusing or mistreating the underprivileged, 
someone who can be taken advantage of, and yet are in our own mind, we're thinking about how we can hoard more of our own wealth to ourselves and hold on to it for our own love. You're just as guilty. You're just as wrong in the way that you're living your life. But the reality is, is your performance isn't what brings you to God. It isn't what gives you that pleasure. So what you're able to do is come to God with openness and realize that your identity is found in the performance of Jesus and not in what you're, able to do, what you're able to do. So you can live this life, and if you have a day where you're not following Jesus well, that should be grieving you as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But you're not thinking that God has somehow left your side. God is no longer loving you and walking with you. You're not thinking that somehow, if I could only live a better life today, then somehow God would bless me more tomorrow and make my life a little bit better. It can't follow that way. Paul goes out of his way to make this point. The final point is that we are often deluded on our own performance. It makes the point that really we think that we are better than we are. We think that one day of us probably doing an honest thing, one day of us actually loving somebody else, we have this great multiplier that we add in there. And we're like, oh, no, I'm usually like this. Yes, absolutely, I've done it once. That self-delusion is what holds us off oftentimes from seeing the sin that's still cleaving to our lives. Those things that we're unable to get out of our way so that we're more actively living following God. So Paul's point, he's boiling it down to this freedom that we're going to experience. But you might be asking kind of my initial point about causation and, and what brings us about. How do you get in a position where you are actually not freed from the law. You're held up from this. Well, there's two basic points that Paul makes a little bit earlier in his sermon, and Dave read these as well. Uh, if, we, if we look up into uh, the key verses, he was talking about the fact that we are caught up from... Uh, it's the end of it, I'm sorry. Verse... It says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. So there's two glaring points of, of missing the message of the gospel that happened. Paul says to this audience in the city of Antioch, saying, you're just like those religious leaders who killed Jesus. And the two things that are true about them, they could also be true about you. So if Paul were here today, he'd be saying, it's just as possible for all of us standing here, sitting here today, to be in that same boat. The first is, is they get in the point of missing the message of salvation because they don't recognize Jesus. And secondly, because they misunderstand the prophets. So as you look at that, what does it mean to not recognize Jesus? He goes through this, this overview of the, all of the Old Testament. And he's pointing to the, the fact that Jesus is the self-revelation of God. And that as he has come, the people should have been expecting Jesus to be who he is. God chose his, his people Israel and he saved them. He gave them a land to his people. And God promised a forever king from the family line of David. And then John taught one greater than he would come after him. So from each of these, Jesus really fulfilled those various points of the message. Just as God chose a people and led them out of bondage, so Jesus came preaching a second exodus and delivering his people from the slavery of sin. Just as God led his people through a time of displacement as pilgrims or immigrants without a home until they reached their new homeland, the promised land, so Jesus calls us as exiles 
toward a home of heaven once our pilgrimage on earth is done. Just as God in heaven chose a king for a relatively small place on earth who had a heart after him to be a ruler forever, so Jesus stands as a savior with a rule without end and a kingdom of the heart that will eventually burst into heaven and earth. And just as John was unworthy and said there would be one after him, so Jesus is one who says there's no one else. I am the way, and he is indeed worthy, also preaching a message of repentance. So when you look at the entirety of, of the Old Testament scriptures, there was this key message building forward for this future deliverer. Think about uh, the, the, new, the canon of the Old Testament as we have before us in English. Right? The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And the message there, it ends with the idea that there's this Elijah-like prophet who's going to come back. He's going to preach a message that is going to bring fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers. And ultimately, if this message is received, it's transforming, bringing about an unbelievable unity. So as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, we get to this climactic point waiting for the start of the book of Matthew, waiting for Jesus to fulfill the story. In the Hebrew Bible, they order it just slightly differently. It ends with the book of Second Chronicles. And in that, we read about some terrible kings who didn't fulfill what was required of them in the nation of Judah. And so God brings some terrible, uh, some terrible destruction on the city through the nation of Babylon. And then the very final words coming from the book of Second Chronicles at the end that ends the Hebrew Bible points to the fact from the mouth of a pagan king Cyrus that one day God will reestablish a house. And there's some really interesting irony. The idea of house is not only just the physical temple to be rebuilt, but also this promise to David of a forever king. And yet this is coming from the mouth of a pagan. So then we could receive the New Testament just following that and understand Jesus steps up to be that forever king that would follow in the line of David. Even the shaping, the ordering of the canon, let alone all the verses, are leading us to this point of the fact that Jesus is come to fulfill it. So a consistent expectation that was coming for the Jewish people was that the Messiah would come and that he would be a savior. He would show himself to bring the people back from their sins. So we should also know that that's who Jesus is. We're not recognizing Jesus when we don't think of him as savior. What that means is, is if you want to see Jesus as a savior, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to see that you're in need of something more, that you don't fulfill the requirements all on your own. It's easy for us to say, maybe we have some natural reverence toward the Bible, some of what God's doing in the world, the church. And so you may be tempted to think, okay, Jesus, he was a pretty good guy, taught some good things. That's okay. I can kind of follow along with him, pick some things that work for me, and really see that Jesus can be meaningful for my life. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't give you that option. The reality is that Jesus stands in front of you and says, I am the Son of God. I'm come as the Savior of the world. So you're forced to a decision at this point. You can't just see Jesus as a moral teacher, someone who is good for your life. You can kind of include him in with other good teachers. You have to look at Jesus and say, is he the Son of God, and is he someone who did what he said he would do? And then you either have to accept him or reject him. And as you look at Jesus in those terms, you see what it means for him to come as a Savior. It means that you know you can't get it done. You can't measure up, so you have to look to Jesus and believe that he is everything that he said he is. That's what we talk about sometimes here about giving a clear and compelling witness of the real Jesus. That's where he is, a savior of the world who stands in front of you. But the second point of, of misunderstanding where we can miss the gospel can come by not understanding the prophets. 
So I wanted to just kind of give a little bit of, under, a little bit of color around what's happening there. Uh, but to make this point, it, it helps us as we read the Bible. Sometimes we can get caught up in lots of details and, and miss the real point of what's happening in the Scriptures. There's, a, there's an author I, I like who's named uh, Graham Goldsworthy, and he's Australian, so I've got to throw this in because there's a, a reason why this relates. So he's telling a, a story about uh, an interesting exchange in Sunday school class, very similar to what we do downstairs with the children, and many of you help on that on a regular basis. I'm sure you can relate to what this experience is like. You ask a question in one of these settings, and it's really easy to know what the answer is. Every, every kid in the audience who's been here probably twice is going to say, Jesus, didn't matter what you asked. That's the story. Well, he tells an example of uh, a Sunday school teacher sharing the story of just really wanting to get the kids to pay attention a little bit more and just quit blurting out the answer. So the teacher says, I'm thinking about someone who's really fuzzy, has little ears, a little black nose, climbs a gum tree, eats eucalyptus. Who is it? And the audience is really stumped of little kids. And one little girl raises her hand and says, I know the right answer is Jesus, but it really sounds like a koala. And the point of that, mess- that, that point there is to say, this little girl, even from her few times of coming to church, understanding the message, gets the idea, yeah, the right answer typically is Jesus. When we're talking about a Bible story, and we're asking who is making this, uh, this possible, who is doing the miracle, who's delivering the people, who's the good guy in the story, who's the hero, it's Jesus. So whether we're reading some part of the Old Testament that might get us really bogged down, reading about the dimensions of the temple, some genealogies, how your beard should be shaved, what dietary laws are present. These different aspects that we can sometimes get bogged down. The characters are vivid. They're really interesting at times. You can even go really deep into the history, the geography that's happening. But don't miss the point. The scriptures were written to tell us about Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament, we're following really the very pattern of what this church is named after. You know, Seven Mile Road comes from Luke 24, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And there's a great point in there where Jesus is speaking to these two travelers. And it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them the things concerning himself. So Jesus could go anywhere from the Old Testament, any story, any part that's taking place, and there's eventually a bridge that he's building, a way to drive home the point that Jesus is the end of that story. So as we come to the scriptures and we're reading them, If we're coming to any conclusion other than that Jesus is who the story is about, we're probably missing the final aha, the final conclusion of that point. So I want to kind of wrap it up here for us and drive home these key key points to us. Paul preaches this message. He's preaching to very moral people, Jewish individuals. I, I can't stop or I can't go on without taking a moment just to pause and have us consider uh, the fact of where we are with so many Jews still living in the nation of the United States who don't accept Jesus as Messiah. 2.2% of the American population are Jewish. 6.7% of New England are Jewish. And 7.2% of the greater Boston is Jewish. So if you keep going through the statistics, you can see we have a high concentration of our friends and neighbors and our co-workers who are Jews who've not accepted Jesus, who don't understand him as their Messiah. So when we speak to these individuals and we love on them and we care for them, we have a a very clear message of what that's supposed to look like. It's supposed to come alongside, love these individuals, care for them, but there's a reality that their great philanthropy, their great caring for their neighbor, their even love of the Old Testament scriptures is not enough. It still keeps them short of knowing Jesus. 
So we have to come alongside and help them understand that. And that's, I think, a key mission that we sometimes forget and need to be reminded of. So many of our friends who are over at uh, Beth Shalom Israel or uh, in Malden as well and, and some of the other synagogues in our area, places that our friends and neighbors that look just like any of us and doing the normal things on an everyday basis are spending their Saturday not knowing that Jesus has come and meets their needs. But then it comes to all of us as well. As we think around our place as sinners, we know that if we live our own way and you do whatever you want, clearly the outcome of that is bad news and you're ultimately going to hell. You're falling short of the expectation that God has for us. You're a sinner. But equally true is the idea that if we're just adhering to our works, our actions, and our performance, that also leads to hell. It's not enough. You won't measure up and you can't do it consistently. So the message of Christianity is we come together and we see that really our performance is, should come out of that point of love. It is correlated, right? There's an understanding that if we love God, then our actions of obedience and following through with what God has asked of us will come out. You will see a correlation there. But it's not causative. It's not what makes the difference for us to follow, follow God and be accepted by him. God loves us and finds pleasure in us on the basis of his son. Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. You see those words there that, that we've pointed to a few times in, in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Clearly that means the law of Moses, the actual five books starting the Old Testament. But it also points to all the performance morality that we hold on ourselves and that we know is there. Even the other imperatives throughout the New Testament, trying to fulfill those in some way to find your access to God is going to sell you short. You're never going to reach the outcome you're looking for. So we have to come to a passage like this and understand what Paul's words are like to the same region. This is Galatia that he's writing to here is where this Antioch is located. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed by the flesh or human efforts? Look, you started understanding that the only way that you can find access to God and the smile of God on your life is by believing in Jesus. So don't get confused as you continue to live the Christian life and you've done it for years that somehow it's what you've done that makes the difference. It's still trusting in Jesus and following in that continually and then acting out of love in obedience for what he's done for you. That's the correlation. And honestly, the causation is always going to come from Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the time we can meet together. We thank you for this passage. Um, God, I pray for everyone in this room. God, I pray that we would experience freedom. Freedom by your Son through the Gospel. God, that you would shake us free from the things that are holding us. Holding us to our own selves, God. Helping us to look at ourselves and our own performance. That that somehow gives us freedom. God, help us to taste that that is, is so false. God, I pray for just a realization today that you love us because of Jesus. And I pray that that would be a comfort and a motivator for us in our living. And God, I also pray for our Jewish friends and neighbors in the area in and around Boston. 
And God, we pray that you would do a great work of bringing many to know you and many to be turned from believing in their own morality and trust in your son, Jesus. Amen.